All right, so week nine, we have been spending the past few weeks looking at the work of Christ. We spent, I believe, six weeks looking at personal Christ. Week seven, we turn to look at the threefold office, prophet, priest, and king of Jesus. And then week eight, we, uh, which is last week, we looked at issues of historical theology, that is, what, what, is the, what has the church said about the atonement? And just as a quick review, um, this evening, uh, the early church did not have a tremendous amount of clarity. Not that they denied the atonement, they believed the atonement. Uh, but there was not a tremendous amount of clarity or precision on the work of Christ as much as there were on issues pertaining to the person of Christ because there was not any need for greater clarity or precision. No one was denying uh, that when Jesus died, he died for sinners. Um, <clears throat> and so with the early church creeds, again, heresies forcing the church to think clearly about these issues, person-nature distinctions, the Trinity, uh, what have you. Um, and so, early church, patristic age, early church fathers, we talked about Irenaeus and Athanasius and their uh, view of re recapitulation. Uh, Jesus as the, as the new Adam, last Adam, obeying where Adam disobeyed. Um, and then we also talked about the move, or well, before the move into the Middle Ages, uh, origins, ransom theory to Satan, uh, where... Uh, Jesus died primarily to, to pay a ransom and pushing that metaphor too far, which they did. Ultimately, the question was the ransom, ransom to whom and, and origin and others, not denying that Jesus died for sinners and to provide forgiveness, that ransom was paid to sinners or to, to Satan. Um, Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, and then that, that moved into medieval period. Peter Abelard and his moral influence theory. Jesus, in terms of the Savior, salvation, his, his work was really just to provide a moral, moral example for us, moral influence for us. Uh, doesn't explain why he had to die. Uh, ransom theory to see, Satan doesn't explain why. Jesus had to die, uh, why the cross was necessary. Moral influence definitely didn't explain that either, uh, though it, help, it provides a helpful aspect of why Jesus came uh, and provide this atonement. Uh, but then the closest that we saw before, prior to the Reformation was Anselm and Anselm's satisfaction theory with uh, feudalism and lords and vassals and uh, peasants and all that kind of stuff, and a strong honor shame uh, that was that was a part of that feudalistic culture. But uh, Anselm argued that Jesus died to satisfy God in order that sinners might be forgiven. Um, not as much clarity on that until really the Reformation, when you see a lot of clarity being applied to the work of Christ. Uh, in large part because of issues related to justification. How, how is someone justified before God? What does justification mean? Is it 
Are we justified by faith in Jesus plus the sacraments, which is what the Roman Catholic Churches had been arguing. Uh, they had, Roman Catholicism was putting, putting forward this merit theology where you added to Jesus' work. And the Reformers come in, obviously, with, starting with Luther uh, and, and penal substitution is given greater clarity, and that's, that's what's argued as the nature, uh, nature of the atonement. We talked about the Socinians, the heretics, the modern-day Unitarians who denied the Trinity and argued that uh, God, the cross wasn't necessary, and God just kind of forgives people and sweeps everything under the rug. Uh, there's, there's no atonement necessary. And then we talked about the historic view of Arminianism, which is the governmental theory, uh, Hugo Grotius, and that is the idea that, that God, there is an external law to God, uh, and that is the law by which men and women are judged, and in the atonement, uh, Jesus' death, God was able to relax the law and provide forgiveness of sins. Um, Jesus did not die as a penal substitute, uh, but God accepted his death uh, and relaxed the requirements of the law so that, so that people could uh, choose to believe in Jesus and actually be saved. And uh, then we talked about 20th century Gustav Allen and building on ransom theory to Satan was Christus Victor, that Jesus' atonement provided uh, us our salvation from the powers from Satan, from the dominions, uh, the, the heavenly powers and authorities. And, and Jesus' work was primarily a cosmic one against the enemies of God. So, the, there have been lots of different perspectives on the nature of the, tome, the atonement. And uh, I think on your bulletin, I, can't, I don't have one in front of me, so I, don't, I can't remember what I wrote, but the... But basically, there are different perspectives on the nature of the atonement, and the question that's being asked uh, is, what did the cross achieve? Okay? So, on issues pertaining to the nature of the atonement, the question is, what did the cross achieve? The, the history of the church has argued for recapitulation, ransom theory to Satan, moral influence, satisfaction, um, <clears throat> Uh, governmental theory, uh, Christus Victor, and penal substitution. So we spent last week looking at just church history, and now for the next two, two and a half weeks, we're going to look at the biblical data. And if you will remember from last week, uh, we argued that in terms of biblical interpretation, uh, we, in terms of interpreting and, and doing the work of the uh, doing the work of theology, it's not a Christmas tree. Uh, the work of theology. Uh, what's the foundation or the base for us in doing doing right theology? It's not the tree stand. Exegesis. We uh, we talked about. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but we, we talked about the hermeneutical spiral uh, in terms of interpretation. 
And ultimately, we, we can't just say exegesis uh, as if we can approach the text uh, without, without having our own biases. But closely tied to exegesis is, is what? We're doing both of these at the same time. Exegesis and what? Be- Biblical theology. It's okay, Dakota. If you know the answer, shout it. Biblical theology. All right. And then it's upon exegesis and biblical theology that we can actually do the work of systematic theology. And that's where we can start doing pastoral ministry, biblical counseling, Christian ethics, and uh, the local church is on, is on top of that. Now, we, we began to discuss uh, what, what is, other than King Jesus, what is the king? In biblical interpretation, something is king. Context is king. Context is king, right? So when we are talking about the eight different categories that I think the Bible gives for us to see the atonement, when we're talking about, uh, for example, sacrifice, we have to be careful that we don't import 21st century ideas of sacrifice onto what the Bible means by sacrifice. So, Webster's Dictionary, as wonderful as it is, and has been historically, it is not the primary uh, tool that we use to define what sacrifice means as it relates to the atonement. Okay, I can sacrifice, I sacrifice for my children, right, by going without certain things in order to provide for them, but that is not what Jesus did for us, and that is not what the Bible talks about in terms of sacrifice, okay? So, when we're talking about the categories of the Bible, uh, we need to understand them, these categories, in light of biblical theology, okay? So, that's what we're talking about, exegesis. In biblical theology, we need to understand sacrifice. We need to understand obedience. We need to understand propitiation. We need to understand reconciliation, justification. All of these categories in light of the Bible's redemptive story that has unfolded progressively across the canon and over time. Um, All right, so these words and themes... They got to be understood in light of the biblical storyline. They're not hermetically sealed, okay? Like we, they're they're not like just devoid of context, okay? So when we turn to these, the first is going to be obedience. Robin, for your uh, for your study guide, uh, obedience is one. Before that, should be nature of the atonement. And the question is, what did the cross achieve? No, that's, that is primary. What did the cross achieve? And so by looking at these eight different categories that we began to touch on last week, uh, only once we start seeing these, these terms or categories in light of the redemptive storyline are we going to really get at the heart of the atonement. 
So obedience. Obedience is both a legal category and a priestly category. Obedience is a term that expresses Christ's perspective on the cross. His perspective in life, his perspective on the cross. And obedience points to the capacity in which Christ has charged every phase aspect of his atoning work. Everything that he did is in terms of obedience. So when we think about obedience, at least biblically, we have got to see obedience in terms of covenant or covenant obligations. There are a lot of different covenants in the scriptures, but really from the creation, the covenant of creation, all the way to the new covenant, there's, there's really two primary commands that are given that are expressed differently in each particular covenant, but They are grounded in Genesis 1 and 2, and the first is love God, and the second is love your neighbor. And so, what does it mean to be an image bearer? What does it mean to be a man and a woman, image of God, male and female? Uh, It means to be made in covenant relationship with God, in covenant relationship with the rest of the world. And an important aspect of that covenant relationship are the covenant obligations to love vertically and to love horizontally. Now that's then expressed in a variety of different commands. Abrahamic covenant, obviously old covenant with a thousand different laws. Uh, But then coming into the new covenant, again the, the primary one that you see, love God, love your neighbor. The law of love, the law of Christ. The royal law, as James would speak about in James 2. So the New Testament speaks about obedience explicitly in three New Testament texts. But obedience is implicit in many, many other places. And we think about... um, we think about Isaiah's servant of the Lord, the servant theme in Isaiah, um, Isaiah 53. Um, <clears throat> so when we think about obedience, I want you to think about it in terms of these three different passages. Romans 5.19, Philippians 2.8, and Hebrews 5.8-9. So Romans 5.19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So by Adam's act of disobedience, sin enters the world, it affects everyone, right? 
But in this last Adam, obedience was the result, and the effect of his obedience is righteousness. Okay? Adam's disobedience, its effect is universal, and its effect is unrighteousness, guilt, corruption. The obedience of the last Adam, uh, he is an obedient one. He is completely and totally loyal to God. In, in covenant obligations, and the result is our righteousness. His righteousness imputed to us. So in Romans 5, Paul's focus on Jesus' obedience can refer to his lifelong commitment of doing the Father's will, but I think it's, it's primarily centered in Jesus' death as the ultimate act of obedience. Okay, look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So that justification is by his blood, and then in verse 19, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, or many will be justified. So that obedience for Paul in Romans 5 is tied to the blood of Jesus. Okay, so if we're thinking about obedience as a theme of atonement, blood is an important aspect. Blood is a very important aspect of the atonement. So, again, moral influence, that's great. Doesn't describe why Jesus had to die. Christus Victor, Ransom Theory to Satan, wonderful themes, speaks a lot of true things, doesn't talk about why Jesus had to shed his blood. Okay? All right, so Romans 5, we, we see an important, an important difference in the two, man, no, the two men in our, in our solidarity. Um, <clears throat> our solidarity with Adam in condemnation is due to our solidarity with him in sinning. Okay? That's why we're like, we're right there with Adam, apart from Jesus. Our solidarity with Christ in righteousness is purely based on what he has done, not at all what we have done with him. So there is a, there is a huge shift from old creation to new creation. And Adam, we're guilty because of Adam, and we're guilty because we sin, and we're corrupt. But in this obedience that, that this last Adam has, has given, it is purely by this one man's obedience that the many will be made righteous. We deserve condemnation in Adam. We are freely given righteousness and life in Christ. So, <clears throat> I'm not going to trace it again. We've, we've done it multiple times. I, I think that you understand, hopefully now, uh, that topology helps us to understand how very important uh, the idea, the necessity of obedience is when Adam is pointing forward and you see all of these miserable failures across the canon and there is no son in sight who can undo Genesis 3. Jesus didn't merely clean up Adam's mess He lived, he obeyed as Adam should have done. 
and he has ushered in a new creation. So this is, this is more than just recapitulation. All right, Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' the last Adam's obedience here, Paul says, his obedience was through his humiliation. Okay, what was his humiliation? By adding to himself a human nature and then submitting himself unto death, even death on a cross. So this incarnation and atonement is a vital, vital component of his obedience. So again, so when we're thinking about obedience, we, Paul is really, really clear in Romans 5 and Philippians 2, death had to occur for obedience to be, to be accomplished. Death had to occur. Moral influence, ransom theory to Satan, Christus Victor, none of, these, none of these historical understandings of the atonement can explain why did Jesus have to die. And the scriptures, in the theme of obedience, obedience is saying death is necessary. Death is necessary because of Adam. And it is through an obedient life and an obedient death that the last Adam is going to have a justified people. All right, Hebrews, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All right, so when, he, when the author of Hebrews is talking about him learning obedience and being made perfect. That is not meant to be understood as Jesus becoming even better and better in terms of moral capacity. Okay? He's not moving from less morally awesome to more morally awesome. Okay? So what is it talking about when he's, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and he was made perfect. It was his qualifications as our high priest. Jesus was perfected as our high priest through what he suffered. So again, obedience has this legal, legal idea, justification, a, a forensic legal category you are not guilty. You are declared not guilty in Christ. Why? Because Jesus was obedient. But this obedience also has a priestly category in that Jesus was ob learned obedience and was perfected through his sufferings. How? 
as a high priest and ultimately as our sacrifice for sins. Governmental theory, moral influence, none of these, none of these other ideas can really, really help you to understand why did Jesus had to die and how is his death an act of obedience? Does that make sense? Jesus' obedience, unlike ours oftentimes, is a, it was a willing and glad obedience. It was, he, it was a struggle. He was tempted. He was attacked. He agonized. But he did it willingly. This is, this is not cosmic child abuse. This is, this is not divine child abuse. This is not an unhinged heavenly father flying off the handle and attacking his his people and, and his son stepping in the way to take the abuse. That is not at all how the Bible presents this work. So <clears throat> two different two different aspects of obedience. Uh, there is there is Christ's active obedience. In Christ's passive obedience. So active active obedience is <clears throat> the the Lord's active uh, work and coming underneath the law and fulfilling and upholding the positive commands of the law perfectly. He did not violate the law in any, in any way. That's his act of obedience. That's what we should do, but we disobey. And his passive obedience is him obediently suffering the wrath that the covenant requires the disobedient to endure and him doing that in obedience to the Father in order to win us. So this is, we need both of these, okay? We need someone to obey for us because we suck at it and Adam ruined it for us because he was not actively obedient. But we also, we need more than just somebody perfect to keep all the commands, because, because since we haven't kept the positive commands of the law, we have come under the condemnation of the law. We need someone to come underneath the condemnation of the law for us. And so in Jesus' obedience, he does both of them. He submits in his life, and he submits unto death. And, and we saw that in Genesis 15. The, the Lord passing through the... the the two animals in this, he's saying, I'm going to do both. I'm going to uphold the covenant, and I'm going to take the, the penalties for disobedience upon myself. So active obedience, what does this speak to? This speaks to our inability to obey. We are unable to obey, but Jesus obeyed for us. Passive obedience 
It speaks to us like we've got to bear our sin or we've got to find somebody to bear our sin for us. So in Romans 5, you see the imputation of Christ's righteousness to his people. Again, legal category. Imputation of righteousness. That's just justification. We see representation. Jesus represents his people in the same way that Adam represents his people. We also see substitution. Jesus obeying unto death. Jesus obeying into the shedding of blood. This isn't simply recapitulation. Jesus being a faithful Adam. This is not, this doesn't have really anything to do with Satan. I mean, Satan's not even a part of the picture when, when we're talking about this. This is not relaxing the law. And so, if we're going to think about the nature of the atonement, we've got to think about the atonement, whatever, whatever particular model we're talking about, it's got to rightly encapsulate the Bible's understanding of obedience. Right? And the ones that we covered last week, recapitulation doesn't quite explain at least this one um ransom theory to satan why is that even relevant satan's not even a part of this whole thing it's all about covenant obligations uh moral influence well i'm glad that he was obedient but like my problem is that i can't obey and the, the, the law says that I've come underneath its condemnation because I can't. Satisfaction gets close. Um, <clears throat> governmental theory like that, again, it's, it's obedience to all of the requirements of the law, not relaxing some kind of a law that's external to God. So obedience is an important an important. Uh, reality that we, as we're thinking about what did Jesus accomplish on the cross, whatever the center of the cross is, whatever the center of the atonement is, it's got it's to have a right understanding of obedience. Okay, uh, second is sacrifice. Number two. Number two is sacrifice. All right, these eight categories, okay, again, as I, as I said probably 20 minutes ago, these are not hermetically sealed off, okay? They're all eight of them are touching each other in the same way that all of God's attributes equally inform one another. God is love, God is just, His, just, his justice is loving, and His love is just. Like, he, he has a holy love and a loving holiness. He has a just holiness and a holy justice. Every different attribute of God informs the other. In the same way, all of these different terms are interdependent. So if we're going to understand sacrifice, we've got to understand sacrifice in light of obedience, propitiation, Christus Victor, all the other themes that we talked about last week. So as important in this exercise of naming and describing these terms is... The most important thing is having a whole Bible theology that helps us to produce proper theological conclusions. 
Okay? So, a right biblical theology is critical to our theological method. So, with regard to sacrifice, this, this one is very, I, I, you'll understand why I'm talking about biblical theology so much. The New Testament clearly interprets Jesus' death as a sacrifice with the Old Testament sacrificial system as the background for the use of this metaphor. Okay, so again, this is not the same as Brian sacrificing himself for his children, working longer hours or two jobs so that they can do all these things. That is not what the Bible is talking about with regard to sacrifice. So when we're trying to understand the atonement and we're reading words like sacrifice, they have to be defined based upon the context of the Bible. Context is king under King Jesus. Jesus' death, yeah. New Testament clearly interprets Jesus' death as a sacrifice with the Old Testament sacrificial system as the background for that metaphor, for the use of that metaphor. Uh, best, I mean, I don't want to say best, but like the, the book that probably, New Testament book that uh, most clearly articulates this this idea in the New Testament is the book of Hebrews and helping us to understand sacrifice in light of Jesus' work viewed through the lens of the Levitical sacrificial system. Okay? The book of Hebrews portrays the cross work of Christ as a sacrifice more than any other New Testament book. Okay? If you want to know how to do biblical theology, read the book of Hebrews and copy what that, the author of the book of Hebrews does. So with the use of the concept of priest, covenant, tabernacle, sin, everything, the concept of, the concept of sacrifice is everywhere in, everywhere in the Bible, everywhere in the book of Hebrews. So our problem, uh, a couple of problems, is that today... We often think of sacrifice in terms of cost to us. I sacrifice for my, for my kids. And then people don't like the idea of biblical sacrifice because that, that is like really, really ancient, Near Eastern blood, killing animals. That is like not at all modern society. It's quite revolting, in fact. But here's our problem. Our culture is more revolted by the death of these animals and these sacrifices, and the whole purpose of all of that is to show you how revolting sin is. Okay, so what we should see is, oh my God, he just had to, he just had to slice that goat's throat and blood spewed everywhere, and that's what happens because of my sin. Sin is revolting. The only reason this is happening is because of my sin. So, uh, in terms of storyline, as we're, as we're thinking about sacrifice, um, I mean, priesthood really, priesthood starts in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek, first time that the term priest is used. 
but in terms of sacrifice, it's really first time you see sacrifice uh, that makes a whole lot of sense and is very important to the storyline is Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is what? Abraham, the, it is the sacrifice of Isaac, that is exactly right, the sacrifice of Isaac, and, and what, what do we see there? God has every right to demand a life for sin. But what does he do? He provides substitution. Why? Because he's made promises to Abraham. And he's made promises to Adam and Eve and to Noah. He's going to undo sin. So Genesis 22, we see, we see a ram given uh, both historically and really like as a living metaphor, a living parable of sorts. Uh, that's what I think Paul's talking about in the book of Galatians, uh, as like our need for a substitute to stand in our place. Um, <clears throat> all right, and then what's, what's the next big, big sacrifice event? You know you can answer too, at least, right? Next big one. This is in Genesis 22. What's next? Genesis? Exodus? Exodus. The Exodus comes next. What in the Exodus? The Passover. The Passover. Uh, Genesis 22, we, we read from uh, author of Hebrews that Abraham believed that even if God demanded Isaac's life that, that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham trusted God's promise, right? He had already made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 15. The Passover, again, it's tied to faith, trusting God's promises, right? So we have a perfect lamb that is the substitute for the firstborn of every house in Egypt and the house that does the sacrifice as God has commanded and puts the blood on the doorposts of the house, the angel of death, the Lord passes over that house, does not strike down the firstborn. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we see Passover and Exodus language picked up and repeated throughout the Old Testament, applied specifically by the prophets. Think about Hosea 2, Isaiah, uh, and, the, and that's tied to the suffering servant. Um, but the, the prophets pick up on this Passover. The Passover is celebrated every year uh, for, for a lot of Israel's history, and then they become so unfaithful that they stop doing it entirely. Um, but it's picked up, supposed to be done every year, and then all of a sudden the Gospels, Jesus, the Last Supper is a celebration of the Passover. And Jesus is, is John the Baptist, last greatest of the Old Covenant prophets, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so, 
what do we see in that sacrifice? We see an animal or the, uh, a particular sacrifice that is innocent and perfect, unblemished, and it is taking the place of someone else or something else. Uh, then what do we see after the Passover? Very shortly after the Passover. It's established in the wilderness at Sinai, and then it lasts for until Jesus dies. The Levitical sacrificial system and priesthood. So the whole Levitical system. And so then we have even greater clarity as to, as to what's going on here. Okay, all right, so what was kind of like murky with Abraham. Okay, God can kill anybody at any time. Uh, he demands now because of sin, but his promise is, is tied to Abraham and the offspring of Abraham, and God gives them a sacrifice uh, or a substitute uh, sacrifice, and then the Passover, Israel, Abraham's offspring, again, there's a substitute to spare them, and then the Levitical system is just a tremendous amount of clarity in that if, if the people of Israel want to enjoy God's presence, if they want God living with them in the tabernacle and in the temple, then, then you've got to have sacrifice and priesthood. That is the only way that you can have God live with you. A holy God cannot dwell amongst an unholy people unless there is shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And with the, with the Levitical system, we'll talk about it in a little bit, is the high priesthood. A high priest who's appointed from God's people, who serves on behalf of God's people as a representative, offering the sacrifice Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, sending the goat into the wilderness, taking the sins of the people far away from the people into the wilderness for condemnation, but then also killing the other goat and spreading the blood, sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat uh, in, the, in the tabernacle or temple, and that the people have forgiveness. But then there's also a variety of offerings, but many, many sacrificial offerings where an animal has to die. And the high priest is putting his hand on the head of the, of the animal sacrifice. Why? He is identifying with that animal as his substitute and as the substitute of the people. So, <clears throat> Passover. Key event, life of the nation. Culminating plague. Israel's not exempt. God is judging all of sin and all of Egypt. And the Passover reflects the notion of sacrifice, substitution, and sin-bearing. Um, <clears throat> Christ's passion, his cross work is at the time of the Passover. Last Passover becomes the Last Supper and the form of, for our Lord's Supper. And then the sacrificial system. Uh, New Testament picks up this idea of animal sacrifices, high priesthood, representation, substitution. This, this gives the most clarity. I mean, because again, this is, it's progressive revelation, right? So Moses is writing the whole, whole, all of these, uh, the story of all of these things, but the storyline is progressing with greater and greater clarity and showing what it is that God demands in order for us to enjoy his covenant presence. Um, <clears throat> we've talked about Adam being a priest um, <clears throat> in the garden, but there was, there's no need for sacrifice there, right? 
uh, until sin entered, and then something had to die for him to be covered, his nakedness and shame to be covered. So the most significant sacrifices, uh, as the New Testament picks it up, are animal sacrifices, Passover, burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. So there are four key notions to, uh, to the idea of sacrifice in the Old Testament. The first is that God is holy. God is holy. Second is <clears throat> humans are sinful. The third is the vicarious nature of the sacrifices is something is dying for something else. A vicarious substitute. And the fourth is, uh, is hope, ultimately hope of forgiveness. Um, <clears throat> and the Levitical system, author of Hebrews is going to explain, like it's insufficient. It was intended to be insufficient. It was intended to be limited. It was intended to end because its primary objective was to point to the cross work of the future Savior. And so we see the prophets picking up the sacrificial system and priesthood. And we see Isaiah, with the, the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord is Israel, who's going to save Israel and Judah from their sins. And he's not only going to just save Israel and Judah from their sins, he's going to be a light to the nations and save the Gentiles as well. And this, this salvation in Isaiah 49 is cast in light of Exodus. Vicarious substitution in Exodus, uh, Passover language. Clearly Isaiah 53, he's, he's going to be crushed for the iniquities of other people. He's going to see his people. They will live. Um, <clears throat> he will have many offspring, but he will carry our sorrows, our burdens, our grief, uh, because he is going to be our sacrifice. And then... What, what you see, what you should see uh, in the Old Testament is that the Levitical system, like I said, is, is just not sufficient. Not only do they have to keep offering sacrifices uh, every year or sacrifice after sacrifice, but there are, there are some sins for which the Levitical sacrificial system provides no atonement. And we talked about it last week. David's, David's adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, like, there is no atonement for that under the Levitical sacrificial system. And so what is David's appeal in Psalm 51? It is purely the mercy of the Lord. He's like, if I could offer a sacrifice, I would. So if we're thinking about sacrifice, we have got to think about it as the Bible is, is casting sacrifice. So while the shedding of animals' blood, slitting of throats, and sprinkling of blood might be revolting, it's intended to be that. And if we don't have blood to cover our revolting sin, then it's our blood that needs to be exacted. It's our death that must be required. And that's an eternal one. All right, any questions before we move to the third? Man, we're making great time.
We might even get four. Four of these, though I, don't, I didn't give you space for it. I gave you so many, I gave you so many blank, blank pages. <laughs> we, we, can, we can go, I can get somebody to go in there and like just fold blank papers for us. <clears throat> All right. Uh, third is propitiation. Not happy with this blue marker. And talk about hotly debated. Propitiation. Um, so PCUSA, Presbyterian Church in the USA, uh, they wanted the Gettys to change in Christ alone. Um, and specifically the line on that cross where Jesus died uh, the wrath of God was satisfied they want PCA uh, PCUSA wanted the Gettys to change that line or permission to change the line to the love of God was magnified why? because the PCUA says God's wrath the cross doesn't have anything to do with God's wrath and at the heart of that is ultimately propitiation. <clears throat> now, this is important. This is often, I hear people say this, especially in seminary. Uh, wrath is not an attribute of God. Okay? Wrath is not an attribute of God. Okay? Not ad intra attribute. Okay? Wrath is an expression of God's attribute or attributes, namely his justice, love, his holiness, his righteousness, okay? God has not been eternally wrathful. There was no wrath between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit prior to creation, okay? So this is not an ad intra attribute. This is a result of God creating the world and judging and dealing, dealing with and judging sin. <clears throat> it's an expression of his justice. Okay, so, and, bef and part of the reason I think why, um, why PCUSA, I mean, ultimately it's unbelief, but a, a big issue for a lot of people that just really, really turns people off uh, is the idea that uh, we need to understand divine wrath in the same way that we understand human wrath. And the issue is, is that the Bible says that, no, he, divine wrath is not the same as human wrath. Okay, so, uh, for example, I heard um, in one of the uh, small groups this past Sunday evening talking about the sermon, talking about God, for God so loved the world, and the question was like, well, hold on now, wait, I thought that the Psalms say that God hates evildoers. Uh, so does God love the world or does God hate the world? And the answer is yes. Yes. Um, and so God can simultaneously love something perfectly and then also simultaneously hate something perfectly. And that's something that God can do that we cannot do. Uh, and in the same way that humans can be wrathful 
it's analogical. It's not one for one. We, we, cannot, we cannot turn around and say, oh, God's wrath is kind of like my wrath when I discipline my kids. No, I am often sinful. Or people often abuse others. Or they fly off the handle. And that's where you get the ideas of cosmic child abuse or divine child abuse. The son standing before the father, uh, an abusive father, and trying to protect his people. Uh, that is not the God of the Bible, and that is not uh, God's wrath biblically understood. <clears throat> so, the New Testament describes Jesus' death as a propitiatory sacrifice four different places. Okay, First is Romans 3. Romans 3 should be 24 to 26. I'll start reading for, uh, from the middle of 22. <clears throat> for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Justification. When you see justified, you need to think obedience. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption, Exodus language, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word there that's translated propitiation, at least in the ESV, hel- helisterion. Helisterion, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's forbearance, or God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, so there's Romans 3, there's Hebrews 2, we've read it many times. Uh, in, in this class. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a f- merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. First John 2.2, 2, this is a famous, famous one in debates on the extent of the atonement. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for, our sin, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, a hilasterion for our sins. Um, <clears throat> so, propitiation. You go wrong. Hilasterium. Okay, Hilasterion, Hilasterion in uh, Old Covenant context, Hilasterion in Greek context. The idea of propitiation is a sacrifice that turns aside a person's wrath or anger. And in our case, it's taking away God's wrath and anger, turning that by taking away sin. Okay, so this is hotly debated. Should hilasterion be translated propitiation or expiation? Propitiation includes the idea of expiation taking away sins, but 
fundamental to propitiation is averting or taking away wrath, turning away wrath by the taking away of sins. Okay? This is, uh, this is, You'll see, you'll see different translators, different English versions of the Bible when you look at those four different verses or passages. Romans 3, Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, 1 John 4. If they translated expiation, you're like, all right, I see where you're coming from. You don't like God's wrath. You don't like the idea of God's wrath. Ex- propitiation, propitiation includes expiation. This, this one, turning, turning of wrath. Uh, this has that, and this is only taking away sin. Propitiation includes both ideas. So, Hilasterion, what, what's the Old Testament background for this? Uh, it does. Uh, Hilasterion, mercy seat. That's what the mercy seat was called. And the mercy seat had to do with animals, specifically blood. Yes, to all the ones and ones of our podcast listeners. Yes, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant over which the Lord appeared on the Day of Atonement and on which sacrificial blood was poured. It's the mercy seat. Old Testament propitiation, clearly. Mercy seat, sacrifice. Two ideas central to propitiation in the Old Testament. Mercy seat, sacrifice. So, <clears throat> we, don't, we don't have to go into this a lot. This is uh, more academic, but I, I want you to be aware of it just because we've already talked about it. Specifically, in the first half of the 20th century, propi- the, the idea of propitiation became really hotly debated. Uh, and the primary opponent of translating Hilasterion into propitiation was a guy named C.H. Dodd. And Dodd argued that Hilasterion should be translated expiation, not propitiation. Uh, and he wanted to do that because he, alta- he was arguing that God's wrath is not personal, it's impersonal. Propitiation has at its heart that God's wrath is very personal. But Dodd wanted to say that it's impersonal. And his idea was coming from his understanding of Romans 1, and that Romans 1 is humanity, all of humanity has rejected their creator, they've pursued created things, they fashioned idols in light of creation, and what did God do? God gave them over to their sins. And then they pursued sexual immorality of the same-sex variety, men lusting after men, women lusting after women, and then, the, uh, Paul continues Romans 1, like God 
He gives them over to even more sin. And Dodd's saying God's wrath is impersonal. It's just, it's just giving people over to the consequences of their own sin. It's just whatever the consequences of, the, of their sin is in the world, that's God's wrath, and it's very impersonal. Whereas God, the Reformers and, and Evangelicals, would argue that, no, God's wrath is very personal. He is personally affronted by your sin. And His personal wrath is upon you because you have offended a person, namely God. So it's not just expiation of like taking away sin, taking away sin or covering sin. It's there's... They're taking away away of Robin's hair by Timothy's sleeve. Uh, so it's, it's not just covering sin or taking away sin. Uh, it's actually turning God's wrath. Now, Dodd, Dodd is, is arguing this and trying to say, well, the, the, the Greek, Greeks didn't, even though uh, uh, in classical Greek, in Koine Greek, that this word has historically meant propitiation, I don't think it means propitiation in the Bible. And so, therefore, uh, it's impersonal. Yeah, and <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we all read we read the Bible with our own. We come with biases. We come with our own presuppositions and assumptions, and we can certainly read the Bible in in ways that <laughs> read read our Bibles in ways that confirm what we're bringing to the text, and maybe minimize things that seem to go against it. So Leon Morris, really helpful in, in arguing against Dodd, he argued that Dodd's extra-biblical evidence was incomplete, that he did not pay enough attention to the biblical context. Um, and then <clears throat> God is, uh, or that there are numerous times where uh, both of these words in, in the Septuagint are referring to propitiation, uh, propitiating the wrath of of men and of God. So like a good a good test test case. <clears throat> Old Testament is uh, numbers. We've we've read it. Numbers 25. Before before the Lord um, and before the people of God, a guy takes a Midianite woman into his tent in order to engage in sexual immorality, Phineas. Yeah, Phineas, uh, grandson of Aaron, uh, takes a spear and goes into the tent and kills both of them. And <clears throat> the plague stops when Phineas kills them. And then the Lord says this, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. 
and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. God's wrath is very personal. God does give people over to the consequences of their sin, but his wrath is very personal. Dodd has more of a conception of a deistic God rather than the God of the Bible. He is like, no, God just like kind of lets it, everything go and just what happens is what happens. Whereas the God of the Bible is intimately involved in every aspect of creation and he is well aware of all sin all rebellion and he stands opposed to sinners and that is what makes jesus so great because he is our propitiation because he has a record of every one of my wrongdoings and the only hope that i have in standing before the lord is that jesus is standing in front of me so biblical terms must be determined not by our culture today, our ideas of wrath, personal or impersonal, but rather by the biblical text, the storyline of Scripture revealed over time. And so this is, this is important with propitiation, and this is going to be, be very important when we're thinking about the nature of the atonement, and this is, this is very, very unpopular. Uh, God is both the subject and object of the atonement. Lots of people will say, God, oh yeah, God's the subject of the atonement. He's doing the work to save his people. Not as many people, people do not like thinking that God is the object of the atonement. That's why the PCUSA wants to change it to the love of God is magnified. Because they do not want to think that God is the one who has to be satisfied. He is the one that, uh, uh, for whom atonement needs to be uh, provided and accomplished. It is God who provides the propitiatory sacrifice because he loves us, subject. And at the same time, it is his wrath that is being propitiated, object. This is not at all like paganism. This is not at all like polytheism in the first, second centuries. This is not the, the idea of <clears throat> satisfying God's it's not that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you look at Hinduism and you look at, I mean, Hinduism, evil is an illusion. Um, when you look at the Greek gods, I mean, they're just like Marvel Avengers superheroes, right? Um and so you don't need to provide atonement to them. Um, they, they might do some things for you, but they don't love you. you. You do need to satisfy them in order to get things from them. 
but ultimately it's very, very much like I'm using you as you're using me kind of thing. But the God of the Bible is like, I love you so much, but I am perfectly just, so I cannot overlook your sin. And so this is what the idea that Paul's picking up in Romans 3, he's like, Paul's like, God overlooked sin for thousands of years through the Levitical sacrificial system, because we know that the sin didn't go away. It didn't get taken care of. So what happened? God was looking forward to the cross. And so at the cross, he is seen as both just and that he takes sin seriously. It will be, it will be, uh, the, the penalty of sin will be executed. His wrath will be poured out on sin. But we have hope because it's not just that God's just, because if it was only that, then we'd all, we were all screwed. He's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God executes wrath justly and perfectly against sin. Sin and wrongdoing is serious, and God takes it seriously. And he justifies sinful people so that we can live with him. And he does it all through the propitiatory sacrifice of the obedient Jesus. So the wrath of God is not impersonal. His justice is retributive. We talked about retributive justice last week. <clears throat> we, do need, we do need to speak carefully about the wrath of God. Like God is not unhinged in his anger. Like, again, human and divine wrath, like, it's analogical. Human and divine anger, it's analogical. Like, it is not one for one. It is very, very, very rare that any of us can exercise righteous anger. And we just need to probably avoid it 99 times out of 100. Um, but God always, always exercises righteous anger perfectly. while also being perfectly loving. Okay, uh, summary of propitiation. And we'll finish up with this. Propitiation is necessary because sin arouses the wrath of God. <clears throat> so in that way, the cross... The cross is oriented towards God. It has a Godward focus. God is the object of propitiation. Why? Because God's holiness and His justice need to be satisfied due to our sin. If He's going to be a perfect, just God, just judge, He has to take our sin seriously. It cannot be some law external to Him that He just relaxes or like the like contrary to the governmental theory in Arminians historically, uh, and then contrary to Socinianism, he cannot just sweep sin under the rug. That makes him a terrible judge. He has to be a just judge, so he has to deal with our sin. Our sin left us with the debt and penalty, and God standing against us. So the cross is necessary. The cross is necessary, and this is why again. Does recapitulation, does ransom theory to Satan, does moral influence, does uh, Christus Victor, does governmental theory, do these historical views of the atonement, 
do they provide an adequate explanation of all of the different themes that the Bible is presenting for us regarding the atonement of Jesus? No. They hit different aspects, but not all-encompassing. And here's the really good news, is that God takes the initiative in propitiation. God takes the initiative. He is not waiting on us. It is His love that is the source of the atonement. It is, it's His own initiative and His own love that drives Him to appease His own righteous anger. So we see that like He's not just the object of the, of the atonement. He is the subject. He's the one in the driver's seat accomplishing it for us well before we ever knew that we would need it. So the cross is necessary. All right, um, <clears throat> and so how, how can God be both object and subject because God offered himself? This is Genesis 15 fleshed out on the cross of Christ. That's Genesis 15, that's then, then made even more clear through the Passover, the Levitical sacrificial system, the future Messiah who would be both priest and king, the suffering servant who would be Israel but would offer himself for Israel and provide the full forgiveness of sins, who would be crushed by God, but who would live to see his offspring, who would bear our penalty, who would bear our stripes and our iniquities and yet be accepted by God. How is this possible? How is it that the Son of Man is going to stand before the Ancient of Days and receive a kingdom that he then turns around and gives to his people? It's because God is man in the person of Christ Jesus. And God offers himself as the propitiatory sacrifice, the eternal word made flesh, the Lord of glory who takes our place, bears our sin, and satisfies his own holy character and wrath, just right, just wrath and righteous demands. And that's how we fight sin, by thinking deeply about these things. All right, any, any questions? We'll, we'll stop there. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll, we will pick up with redemption and uh, cover redemption, reconciliation. Um, we'll... Yeah, justification. We might, we might go further than that with conquest, but probably not. Any any questions about any of these things? Again, 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 we're we're building a biblical case for what is the nature of the atonement. What is the heart of the atonement? So we've got to take what the Bible is presenting. These ideas, categories, themes that the Bible is presenting. And then interpret them, not in light of how we define them today. Not in light of how cultures defines them. Not in terms of like primarily satisfaction of a feudal Lord's honor. But primarily in light of the Bible's own categories. Revealed over the course of the redemptive storyline. Okay? So when we put all of these eight categories together. They're not hermetically sealed. Remember, they're all together. Just like God's attributes. 
What, what we will see when we look through them is we will see that the heart of the atonement is penal substitution.